Well, good morning. This morning I want briefly to talk about the M6. (laughs) For those of you unfamiliar with the UK's road system, it will help you to know from the outset that the M6 runs from the very northwest of England, from the city of Carlisle, down to just south of Birmingham, a distance of roughly 200 miles. The road to the north of the M6, which connects Carlisle with Glasgow, is called the A74 open brackets M, close brackets. (laughs) For those of us who live on the east coast of Scotland, it is still probably quicker, in theory, to drive over to the start of the A74 open brackets M, close brackets, and drive down the west side of the country to get to, say, London in the southeast of the country than it is to drive down the east side of the country. Time and consideration prevent me from going into detail as to why this is, but I would ask you to trust me on this. In theory, we can get to West London in a comfortable nine hours without breaking the law if we take this express route, in theory. I will return to the M6 in due course, but if I could just ask you to allow it to lurk for a while, I promise to clarify later. I don't often listen to our podcasts for the simple reason that I'm usually here for the live talk. But for two of the last five weeks, I've been having a riot in Young Vineyard, and I have to tell you, we have some of the coolest kids ever in this church Note, effortless segue into promoting, again, this afternoon's big fat church family party, five to seven, where we've looked, uh, sorry, where you will be able to meet some of them. Anyway, I listened to the first of Toby's talks on Acts 20, 28, where we've looked at Paul's instructions to take care first of ourselves and then of the flock, or those with whom God has put us together in community. I listened again to the second talk which I had heard, and I read last week's. I loved and was challenged by all of them. I would say that, wouldn't I? And I was particularly struck by one small phrase that Toby came out with almost in passing. It was this, you can fail to unlearn. In the light of that little phrase, I want to look at two short pieces of scripture, both probably very familiar, one from the Old Testament and one from the New The first passage is from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, and the second is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 to 22. So Proverbs first. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. And then Thessalonians. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. What are the do's in these verses? Do trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do acknowledge the Lord in all your ways. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Test everything. 
hold fast to what is good, abstain from every evil. And what are the do nots? Do not lean on your own understanding. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecy. All well and good, and it all trips off the tongue very nicely. But in my experience, none of the do's are as easy as they sound, and all of the do-nots can happen effortlessly if we're not careful. Point one. What does it look like to trust the Lord with all my heart and to acknowledge him in all my ways? How do I live out my life doing these things? God loved the world so much that he sent his only beloved son to die for us. So it says, as most of us know, in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16. In dying for us, Jesus took on his shoulders the crushing weight of all our sin, all our shame, all our guilt, so that we could come before God wholly cleansed and forgiven, acceptable to God our Father, because we recognize and accept his gift to us, Jesus Christ. He gifted Jesus to us. God's love hereafter is unconditional. God's love is also unchanging, because unlike ours, which can fluctuate from time to time, let's face it, God's love is perfect. God is the prototype father, No human parent comes close. Speaking personally, my earthly dad was a wonderful man in whose love I was completely secure. I knew beyond any doubt how much he loved me. I was blessed indeed, and I know it. Many people have a very different experience of their fathers. Some have no idea who their father is. Some have dads who are too exacting or domineering or brutal, or abusive. In the past, I've known and heard of people who who cannot relate to the concept of God as father because their own fathers fell so far short. Our experience will mold our understanding. But really, our experience is only that, our experience. So here's the first reason not to lean on our own understanding. It can skew our perception. It ain't necessarily so. However fantastic our earthly fathers have been, or however wanting, God is the prototype father, and he must therefore be our starting point. We need to take off the distorting lens through which we view him and learn to look at him as the Bible presents him, most particularly through the perfect 2020 vision lens of Jesus. If we need proof of God's love for us, there it is, in the person and sacrifice of Jesus. This is a Lord we really can trust with all our heart. And knowing this must surely affect how we live life. A God in whom we trust is a God whom we can approach without fear. Now, without in any way wishing to insult anyone's intelligence, when these proverb verses talk about fearing the Lord, it does not mean approaching him cringing and in terror of his response. It simply means approaching him with humility, with awe, with reverence, with veneration, 
We're not equals. We're not mates. But he is our Abba Father, our Dad. And therefore, because of Jesus, we can approach him with the expectation of a wholly accepting response. The response may bring discipline. But if it does, it will be loving, not harsh. Last week, Toby mentioned Peter's reaction to Jesus in Luke 5, where Peter recognizes both the miracle of the full nets of fish and his own innate sinfulness. His reaction, you'll remember, is to tell Jesus to leave him because, quote, I am a sinful man. We can surely relate to that reaction. I certainly can. I can relate to so many of Peter's (coughs) daft reactions. He learned so much from Jesus, but he had to unlearn quite a bit more. His flawed humanity is such a comfort to me, and his love for Jesus and desire to learn both fantastic examples and hugely encouraging, encouraging sorry, for all the daft reactions, misunderstandings, wild enthusiasms, and frailty, Jesus chose Peter as the man on whom to build his church. There's hope for us all. Often an acute awareness of our own sin, our despicable weaknesses, our many flaws and failings, and our self-pity can serve to make us feel unworthy and unable to face God or God's people. So we do the exact opposite of what God asks of us, which is to draw near. Leave me, Lord, for I am a sinful woman. I'm not fit to be seen. So instead, we race off in the opposite direction, straight into the waiting arms of an enemy who delights to pile on the shame. This is 1 John 1 9, as it appears in the message. If you only ever memorize one verse from the Bible, let it be this one. If we admit our sins, make a clean breast of them, he, God, won't let us down. He'll be true to himself. He will forgive our sins and purge us of all wrongdoing. To be honest, I rarely stand up here without referring to this verse. That is one good deal. And try as I might, I can find no caveats or small print exceptions, just full-on forgiveness. But we do have to go to him, and we do have to confess that we've screwed up and made a mess of things again. To recap, we can trust God with all our heart because he loves us unconditionally in spite of knowing exactly who we are and what we're like. We reverence him, but we do not have to live our lives in terror of him punishing our wrongdoing. Whatever the father of lies, the accuser of the brethren would have us believe, God is a loving father, not a punitive one. He wants us to come to him to affirm us and to forgive us if necessary. It probably will be. And we know this because of Jesus, because of who he is and what he has done. That's the truth. Here's what we do to maintain that truth at the forefront of our thinking. It is not new, and you will have heard it before. We read our Bibles. We worship. We do not fail 
to meet together. It never fails to astonish and appall me how quickly we can push the truth onto the back burner so that it burns dry. Keep an eye on the stove. I think I might be overworking this analogy, so I'll move on. Point two. I touched fleetingly on not leaning on our own understanding from Proverbs with regard to our personal experiences of fatherhood, potentially skewing our vision. The 1 Thessalonians verse encourages us to test everything. At first, these verses seem to me to be contradictory. Isn't testing everything an invitation to expand the understanding which we're not supposed to lean on? Here's an essential lesson, though, and it's one we come up against all the time and yet still ignore, often at great peril to our clarity of understanding. We absolutely must look at these things in context. Our understanding can only really grow in the wake of allowing God access to our hearts. We can and often do refuse God access to our hearts. Instead, we do all we can to fix the situations ourselves. We rely on our own understanding and what a hash we make of it. Trusting in the Lord and acknowledging him in all our ways effectively means giving him unrestricted access to our hearts. That is how our understanding grows. We apply our understanding within the context of our relationship with Jesus. Without him, our understanding is by definition limited, certainly with regard to the nature of God and who we are in him. We trust in him and acknowledge him first, and then our understanding will grow and deepen. What Jesus is prescribing for our deadly spiritual illness is not amputation of certain behaviors, but radical heart surgery. Somebody wise said that last week, you may remember. The two little words, test everything, follow two do not instructions. Do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophecy. There's a whole talk here for both of those. And I cannot begin to do justice to the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in a couple of minutes. So here is the soundbite version. May the Lord forgive me. In the Gospels, particularly in John's Gospel, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That's John 14, verse 16. Later in the same chapter, in verse 26, Jesus says, The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The role of the Holy Spirit is to be with us forever, to teach us all things and to bring what Jesus says to us in Scripture to mind. It is he who enables and empowers us to trust the Lord and to acknowledge him in all our ways. It is he who prompts us to hold fast to all that is good and to abstain from evil. It is he who will perform that radical heart surgery so we all, without exception, sorry, that we all desperately need him to perform. But we need to give him the go-ahead. In the vineyard, we invite the Holy Spirit to come and we ask him to fill and to refill us frequently. We leak because we're human and therefore imperfect. We need to ask for him to replenish our parched spirits regularly, just as we need to eat 
regularly for our bodies to function. The Holy Spirit is not to be reduced to being the celestial supplier of hand-raising and tongues-speaking. That, as our daughters would say, is not okay. Of course, there is nothing wrong with raising our hands in worship. If there is, I, for one, am heading straight to hell. And St. Paul actively encourages us to seek the gift of tongues. But these things are only two of the possible signs of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. There are other, arguably less flashy ones. And Paul names them in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I can reel them off, but am I growing in them day by day, week by week, year by year? It's a challenge. It's possible to shut the Holy Spirit out and to shut the Holy Spirit up. But if we want to go beyond the limited confines of our understanding and wisdom, we'd best not do that. After being advised not to quench the Holy Spirit, the strong recommendation is that we do not despise prophecy. As I said, another whole talk here. But I just want to refer you to this leaflet and to thank Jim for preempting the next bit of my talk so thoroughly and completely. Um, the leaflet. It's on the back, on the boards, where the home group uh, information is. Um, <laughs> What this does is to outline for us what we as a church understand about prophecy and what we teach about it. As you will have seen this morning, people do come up to the front on occasion and run by whoever is leading the meeting any word or prophecy they feel that God may have given them. And God has been so gracious to us this morning already. These are what we term inspirational prophecies given to strengthen, to encourage, and to comfort. We also prophesy to one another and speak words of encouragement and affirmation in home groups. I think many of us may have a concept of prophecy which is limited. All thunder and lightning, hellfire and judgment, beards, that sort of thing. Yeah. You can't really... Didn't you know that? You can't really prophesy if you don't have a beard, apparently. I don't Yeah. Well, maybe, but it's very far from being the whole story. We believe that prophecies are still given and that God will speak to us through prophecy now as well as through the prophecies in the Bible. Some of God's church do not agree that prophecy is still ongoing. And while it's tempting to get all uppity and self-righteous about how wrong they are, that is neither our brief nor our place. We need to concentrate on getting our own house in order. So what does despising prophecy look like? I think the most common error we make is to refuse the comfort and encouragement which our loving Father God is seeking to give us, either through other people or from his word. Some years ago, I chose to be resolutely grumpy about something or other, as you do, right? in an uncharacteristic strop, and with a, this is not going to make me feel better, but at least I'm being obedient sort of attitude, 
I opened my Daily Light, which is an aid to Bible study sort of book. And there, under that day's date, was this verse, Psalm 77, verse 2. My soul refused to be comforted. It was as if God was saying to me, Ooh, huffy! (laughs) Well, the aptness of it for me at that particular moment made me laugh. And of course, laughing is very comforting, even when you're trying as hard as I was to maintain the sulk. Some of us lean so heavily on our own understanding of who we are that we end up basically refusing even to try to see ourselves as God sees us. This too is not okay. Refusing to be comforted, rejecting the loving, encouraging and spirit-strengthening things that our friends say to us, that God says to us through our friends, is one way we can despise prophecy whether we mean to or not. There are other ways, but that's probably enough to be going on with. So, having been advised neither to quench the spirit nor to despise prophecy, we come to that little phrase, test everything. Here is what test does not mean. It does not mean view everything with the utmost suspicion. And it does not mean find fault with everything. When we have our annual pat testing of electronic everythings in the church office, our kettle, our lamps, our worship equipment, the guy doing it is not out to frustrate us, nor, as far as I'm aware, does he get commission on every item he fails. (laughs) He's simply trying to ensure that we don't electrocute ourselves. Our well-being is his priority. Similarly, when scripture encourages us to test everything, God is actively asking us to think, to discern whether something is right or not, not to take everything at face value, but to see if we need to hold fast to what is good or to leave well alone. Throughout scripture, God invites us to seek wisdom, his wisdom, Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom. The first four chapters of Proverbs talk about little else. And if you want to read the most beautiful and poetic piece of writing on wisdom, read Job 28. I wish we could look at it here, but for now, let's content ourselves with the final verse of that chapter. It's verse 28 of chapter 28. And it says, And he, God, said to the human race, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. This leads us neatly on to point three and the vexing question of what is evil? What is it we must shun? How long have you got? People can and do argue long and hard over this one and a definitive list will not be on offer here. I confess I sometimes find it amusing listening to people tying themselves in knots on the radio talking of, say, prostitution as a valid and empowering life choice for women. I find it amusing until very suddenly I find it so stupid and short-sighted that I want to throw the radio in the bin. There is another list in Galatians which precedes the list of characteristics and Paul highlights as signs of a Holy Spirit-filled life. In Eugene Peterson's wonderful paraphrase, The Message, verses 19 to 21 of chapter 5, Read like this. 
It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits. The vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on. This isn't the first time I have warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. That's uh, Paul speaking, by the way, not me. Um, so we probably do want to shun that stuff. A quick aside, though. There are less obvious evils we might want to guard against, too. Self-righteousness, for example, or judging others adversely when they drink too much, or even, heaven forfend, smoke. Intellectual or class snobbery. Intellectual or class inverted snobbery. Cynicism masquerading as wit or even wisdom. Again, it's not an exhaustive list by any means. I think we shun these evils when we acknowledge before God how ugly they are and how deep they can run. So where does that little phrase which set me off on all this come in? How can we fail to unlearn? We can fail to unlearn when we close our minds off to the Holy Spirit's prompting and his encouragement. We can fail to unlearn when we say no to that radical heart surgery because we fear the pain or even the failure of it, even though we know that without it, our lives will be at best immeasurably impoverished. We can fail to unlearn when we insist that we're right all the time. In our list of vineyard values, we say that we value mercy even above being right. I love that. And I love something that Toby speaks of often. We'd rather win a friend than an argument. Let's learn to think, speak, and act with the mercy and grace that God has so lavished on us. And here's the rub. All this unlearning will not happen overnight. It didn't for Peter, and it won't for us. The developing of theory into practice will take a while. It always takes a while. The fact we know what to do doesn't mean that we necessarily do it. It will take some of us longer than others, and that's fine. God gives us the prize for running this life race with perseverance and endurance, not so much for winning as for winning through. When our daughter Hannah, so it just still makes me laugh, when my daughter Hannah was really little and in her first year of primary school, we were rushing one morning because we were late, and she was hurrying along looking pained. And suddenly she said, my legs are talking to me. Okay. They're saying, keep going, Hannah. 
keep going, little Hannah. It's exactly how she said it, right? I'm reminded of that every time I read Hebrews 12 about running with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Keep going, little Carol. I commend it to you. And so, finally, back to the M6. The M6 provides me with the perfect illustration of the marriage between theory and practice. In theory, as I mentioned, it takes nine hours door-to-door going from St. Andrews to West London, where many of our extended family and friends live. In practice, it can, and often does, take rather longer. Our record to date, if I remember correctly, is 13 and a half hours. I prefer the theory. The theory gloriously fails to take note of roadworks, diversions, and accidents. It matters not one whit to me, beloved as I am of the theory, that the roadworks may be essential and that the accidents may have serious consequences for others. The diversions can, I admit, be quite interesting because you get to see things you haven't seen before and some of those things are quite beautiful and uplifting. Pretty buildings, green meadows, lovingly cultivated gardens. But they still get in the way of the theory. I expect to get to London in nine hours. We rarely do. The theory is always much more straightforward and much easier to contemplate than the practice. So it is with life in general and with our Christian life in particular. In theory, we might have it all taped. We can talk a good talk and we can pass exams in academic forgiveness and holy living. But the practice... The practice is tougher. It takes a lot longer and requires more of us than the theory. But sometimes the obstacles and the setback teach us far more than simply knowing the theory ever will. To finish, I want to read from the message. Trust God from the bottom of your heart. Don't try to figure everything out on your own. Listen for God's voice in everything you do, everywhere you go. He's the one who will keep you on track. Don't assume you know it all. Run to God. Run from evil. Shall we stand? Um, I just want to bring to mind again the two words from the Lord that were given to us through Phil and Scott. Uh, the image of it being a, 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 you know, a budding tree looking dead just before it buds on the one hand and that feeling of, if you like, everything being academic, everything being theory rather than practice. And you can see it in others, but you don't see it for yourself. If you feel that is you, then... I would encourage you just to have the courage to come down and somebody from a home group in the church will pray for you. But if there's anything else too, we just love to um, minister the Holy Spirit to people and that's what we believe he delights in our doing. So can we just pray? And uh, then Alistair and Sarah will lead us in some more worship. Father God, we're so grateful to you 
Father, um, you give us so much more than what we deserve. So, Father God, I just want to ask now that you will touch each and every person in this room with your spirit. And, Father, I thank you that you encourage us always to come to you, to run to you, whatever state we're in, however much we despise and dislike ourselves that's not how you feel about us and we bless you for it lord thank you that your desire is not to break a bruised reed or to crush us or to kick us when we're down but to affirm us grow us and strengthen us in jesus name amen